inside of your head, like deep in the recesses of your mind, <laughs> you are doing a calculation of like what your motivation is and what the cost is going to be of the effort like that you have to, that you know that you have to do to either do well there or to even like, you know, warm up, like we said. And as we get fatigued, you know, motivation wanes in that, that perception of like what that cost is going to be starts to get, I think, out of, out of tune with reality. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Matchbox Podcast presented by Ignition Coach Co. I'm your host, Adam Sabin, and today we have Andrew Jeanette and Drew Dillon back in the studio. Today we're bringing you a discussion on athletic fatigue. What is fatigue? How is it induced? And what are some ways to mitigate training fatigue? Stay tuned to find out. As always, if you like what you hear, share this with your friends and leave us a five-star review. If you want us to cover a training-related topic in a future episode, you can drop an email to info at ignitioncoachco.com with email title, The Matchbox Podcast. Or send us a DM on the Ignition Coach Co. Uh, Instagram page. All right, let's get into it. What was that, Drew? What, what were you just saying? I said, oh, darn, I lost it. Oh, here we go. <laughs> the brain's role in endurance is perhaps the single most controversial topic in sports science. Should we just end it there? I mean... Is that a uh, podcast over? Is that it for nah, today? No, nah, <laughs> I've been looking. I've been looking forward to podding all week, man. <laughs> no, we're just messing. Um, yeah, guys, we're back today uh, again. We don't have Dylan, but um, Andrew and Drew in the house. Um, today we're going to be talking about fatigue. Drew, you look right. fatigued, man. You uh, fatigued today you do- is Wednesday. <laughs> I look fatigued. Yeah, man. Hashtag dad life getting to you or what? Um, I was up late last night on the trainer because the weather here has been poor. So I had to bust out some eight minute threshold intervals on the trainer, which is subpar for me. I hate doing intervals on the trainer, but I did get to watch this weekend is the sunny King crit, which is a, uh, a smooth transition into what you're training for. Yeah. So I'll ask myself what you're training for. Dizzle? <laughs> oh, Dizzle. Oh, okay. I'm training for the sunny King crit. And so that's night I did. Uh, but I was watching the, cause a lot of these crits I've never done. So I've never done sunny King last year was my first time doing a lot of the big ones like gateway and Tulsa. So what I'll do is I'll, while I'm on the trainer, um, I will pull up previous races. And, um, so I watched the sunny King crit from last year, Hernan- Michael Hernandez and Tanner Ward, two man break last 15 laps. Uh, there were a lot of breakaways up to that point that looked like they were going to go. And then those two made it work. So I've got, you know, I've got some good insight into how the race kind of plays out. I mean, I wish that I knew what happened in the last 10 years of the race, but I don't have that kind of time on my hands. So I know what happened last year. Well, I, I can, <laughs> so hopefully uh, that'll help me. <laughs> I can tell you I've done. Yeah. I think I've done like the last four editions maybe, but Is with, it always with respect, a break. No, <laughs> It is not, no. it is not okay. always a break. So, so last year was sort of unique in that it was a, a pretty small but super strong field. And I think it was the mm-hmm. hardest Sunny King I've ever done. Um, yeah. And uh, I'll tell you what, man. Um, people were just throwing haymakers like mm-hmm. all day long. And it was yeah. a strong enough field. Like there was enough depth that like moves were just not going. Like everything was coming back. 
Um, it seemed like as soon as a breakaway would get a gap, they'd lose the breakaway of like four riders would lose their groove. And in that, in that instant of losing their groove, the field would kick on their groove and catch them. It was like, well, it would happen so quick. I'm like, Oh man, this break's gone. And then next thing you know, they're caught. I'm like, what? I just put my head down for like 30 seconds and now they're already think, back together. So here, here's the thing about that course, right? And it probably looks a lot flatter on the stream than the it is in real life. straight Wait, is up, isn't it? Where, where it, is thinking? In Anniston, Alabama. Alabama. Right outside Birmingham, Alabama. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what, so, so, yeah. So what's the course like? So it's it's um, it's four corners, yeah. up, uphill through the start finish, and it's sort of like past the start finish line, it kind of flattens out. Between corners mm-hmm. one and two, it's kind of flat. And then between two and three, it's all downhill. It's like a super fast mm-hmm. downhill. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you do two more corners that are sort of like, you know, you almost take them as one. Like it's sort of like a rectangle. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason I think why it's so hard for a break to survive there is because if you're, let's say, in like a four-man break, right, you you always want to be pulling through the start finish because you're all sort of doing the same effort because you're going uphill. And then nobody wants to be pulling on the downhill because you're, mm-hmm. you're working harder than everybody else because they're just coasting while you're doing 450 watts, that you know, downhill. And so I think it's just yeah. hard unless it's a really small break where you can sort of like ensure that like everybody's doing equal work. Um, it's, it's, and it's hard the, to get into a rhythm. Yeah. And the break last year was like Hernandez and Tanner, which, you know, That's, arguably yeah. two of the strongest riders in the whole field. Like it was clear very early that Hernandez wanted a break to go. He was pretty desperate. Tanner. So as soon as they got into a break, they were like a hundred percent committed. So, well, and I'll tell you what, the reason why that break in particular went is because everybody was on their knees at that point. Like, yeah, we were all so uh-huh. nobody could do anything. And that's you yeah. know often how the break goes, right? Is that everybody's like, nothing's gone. I'm dead. I'm just sitting. Yeah. In. It's 15 to go. I gotta like. Yeah, and I, I know Hernandez was bummed with getting second place, but <laughs> like no doubt in my mind, he was like the most aggressive rider because he was in. I think at 50 percent, at least 50 percent of every breakaway that like got an established gap, he was one of the members of the break. <laughs> I'm like, dude, this guy never gives up. Um, so. Yeah, it was pretty clear who were the strong riders because they were the ones animating it throughout the entirety of the race. Like there was one hot tubes kid who for the first 30 minutes just like lit it up. Like I think for a while he went solo and I'm thinking this kid's an idiot. What's he doing? And then as soon as they hit like the 30 minute mark, you never see him again. Right. And then you see him get dropped on the last lap. And I'm like, oh, junior years, bummer. He <laughs> was strong, yeah, but it, yeah. It, it, it was it was weird. It's, it's sort of... um. Just to give you kind of a primer on what to expect, it, it definitely slowed down a bit at the end because, again, unless you have like a really um, like fall on your sword um, sort of lead out, it's hard to go fast enough on the downhill to maintain control. Because if mm. you're if you're following, you know, if you're like fifth, sixth, seventh wheel, whatever, um, you're just coasting, and so all it takes is like yeah. one huge effort to kind of come around people because you've been coasting. Mm into that last corner. And so that's, that's what I did. Like I was definitely out of position. I just got sort of lucky, like chose the right side of the field going into corner three, sort of like, despite, you know, being a little bit out of position, I think I ended up like sixth or something, which wasn't bad with two guys up the road, you know, 
Yeah. And I, I wasn't going to come around Ty and um, Gibbons. I don't know who else was up there. Maybe like Clever Martinez or something. But all I, I know pretty, is that, good about that your your team failed to put a single rider in any of the breaks. <laughs> well, <laughs> I did notice that. But I think you know, your team was also in short supply. There was yeah, there was two of us and yeah, I was I was so sitting I was in like man. I guess that I saw you guys' kits a lot because they, they kind of stand out and I've seen them before and then I realized oh I think there's only like two or three of them in there so there there was yeah. two of us and then we had a we had a hired gun with us and he he was in a ton of stuff big big dude yellow kit Eric Thompson oh yeah yeah he was rolling with y'all yeah nice. he was rolling with us yeah he was pretty active the first thirty minutes too and then he kind of faded so. I, he, I definitely is he the tend to do guy? the same thing. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. He did it on his cross bike. They were talking about it in the middle of the race. So I'm like, like that guy's sweet. on a precise cross bike. He's getting some, he's getting some screen time, but that's definitely my takeaway from watching it is, uh, I'm, I'm one of those riders that definitely like is pretty eager in the first 30 minutes. And so I'm just going to like rein it in and make sure I don't do over, over, overextend myself in that first half of the race. Cause it didn't seem like anything was going to go that early. Um, last, last thought on that. Um, I know I said that it's not always a breakaway, but the year prior, so I think it was like 2019. Th- it was like a break. When like Summer six Hill. Or seven. Yeah. When was, Summer Hill. Yeah. Oh yeah. That wasn't I've good. heard about that. <laughs> Yeah, that wasn't the best. Yeah, is that the one that was a he crashed. He crashed yeah, out of the break and like on the he break, was like about solo breakaway like, or something. Yeah, he was about to roll and like solo, but uh, he said that he had it won, and then he hit a turn too fast and just crashed. Was it that downhill <laughs> sweeper? You're talking about like going into yeah, turn three. It, you could crash in any of the corners. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. But yeah, and then they, you know, whoever the camera operator was, was like, let's keep the camera on this guy while he flips out for a second. Mm, yeah. Which is, which yep. is like, yeah. I guess it's they entertaining, re- but I feel a little bad that they. Yeah, they did replay that scene um, during the 2021 Sunny King. So I did get to see that part. So, and of course he's in a Texas Roadhouse kit, which was nice. <laughs> and then in 2018, it was. It might have been 2017, but it was it was raining, and Brian Gomez, who was on mm. Incapy at the time, I think won solo. Wow! But it was raining, right. so it was, it was a little bit a little bit different. Whenever it's raining, there's like I think a bigger advantage being solo. Right? Are you going to be there this weekend? No, I'm too scared. Oh snap! Darn! I'm sorry. Don't say snap. <laughs> Dang it! <laughs> I, I'd like to be. I I actually really like yeah. that race. It's a super hard Will race. Will your squad be there? No, no. I think everybody's no. um, pretty sort of like gearing up for Redlands, so they're all okay. going nice. long miles and that sort of thing. I gotcha. So Andrew, cool. you talked cool. about uh, like one or two episodes ago um, training for Gila. Is that still on the cards for you? Gila's happening. Cards? Cool. Are you going to try is... your altitude plan? I, I'm actually going to go to Colorado. <laughs> okay. Nice. <laughs> So yeah, I really, uh, I really wanted to, uh, uh, you know, go to Beach Mountain this week, but it just the the week, you know, like all the work I have to do just kind of got in the way. So, so I'm how just gonna. How far out? How far out is Gila? It's in um about four weeks now. Oh, okay, dude, you have plenty of time. 
Plenty of time. And you'll go to Colorado when? Uh, Next Monday on the 11th. Yeah. Okay, so you'll have like two weeks up there before Hilo then? I'll have two weeks up there. And so the plan is go to go to Boulder, which is only at, you know, 5,300 feet. So it's not, you know, it's, it's 2,500 feet higher than here in Asheville. Um, and then I'm going to kind of keep track of my uh, blood oxygen saturation with like a one of those little like pulse oximeters. And if things normalize like quickly enough and I get to like, you know, back into range, then I'll go to my teammate Christian's house in Vail, which is at like 8,000 feet. Um, but I'm going to play that one by ear. Cool. What about you, Adam? What you training for, homie? Uh, just training right now, honestly. I mean, I, I'm still a ways off from the notifications are not good. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Um, yeah, so I, I, I've got like six weeks still, I think, until maybe maybe five weeks um, until my next race. Um, so I'm kind of just trying to use this time to get some volume in. Uh, with the winters here in South Dakota, they're cold. And um, if it's snowy, it's fine. But when it's just cold and super windy, it can be challenging. Um, so... This winter was was okay. We had some mild days, so I like I kind of got some sporadic volume in. Um, but with doing some like fat bike racing and stuff, I, I really haven't gotten a big base volume in yet. So kind of using the next four weeks to probably get some more miles in, and then uh, first mountain bike race will be uh, end of May, I think. Um, Englewood, the Pro XCT up in Wisconsin. Oh yeah, yeah, um, I did that one last year. You did it last year? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, there's like a short track race on Friday, I think, and then XC on Saturday, um, which would be cool. I It's been a while since I've done an actual like true XC race. Most of my race in the last few years have been marathon 50-mile-plus races, so um, it would be kind of fun to get back into some shorter intensity work. Um, yeah, honestly, that one is like – it feels a lot like a cross race. I mean, when I was there, I was sweet. like, this is sweet. Um, it's in like this the like, course or, or what? Yeah. The, the course, it's only like a, if I remember correctly, it's only like a 15 or 20 minute course. Um, so okay. it's definitely longer. Like the lap itself is longer than a cross course, but, uh, a lot of the sections of the course feel like a cross race. Like it just like turns in a field, um, and like pretty open. And then you, it's like, you kind of go into like sections of single track, but none of it's really technical. There's not any like super, there's a couple like little rock gardens that are 20 seconds long, you know? So they're Mm -hmm. not that crazy. Um, but besides that, it's just like fast turns. It's fun. It's like the elevation profile. Is Is it hilly at all? There was no significant Hills. There was like one, one semi-significant hill right before the most technical rock garden and it was basically just a like up but it wasn't even that steep it was probably like a 45 second one minute climb um okay but if you look at the terrain it's just like there's not any big hills around so yeah i mean the, the it's it's just outside of madison wisconsin so it's there's like some rolling hills there but um, yeah. nothing super significant in elevation. So right. I wouldn't expect yeah. it to be, uh, you know, any, any super long climbs or descents. Um, yep. yeah, it's yeah, like, some decent it's like climbs an hour at Blue from Mounds. my, what's that? You can get some decent climbs at Blue Mounds. 
right? There's like a 10 minute climb. Yeah, there. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you can get some, yeah, maybe six, seven minute road climbs. Yeah. Um, which if you put a trail on that with switchbacks and stuff, I guess you could get some longer elevation gain. But yeah, um, yeah, nothing like that for this sure. This is, yeah, I mean, it's like it's it's at a farm. So yeah, that's kind of why I figured <laughs> it was going to be a little bit flatter. Yeah. Most farms mm-hmm. are on, you know, relatively flat terrain. Um, it but it's, it's in Wisconsin. It's like an hour from my family lake house. So that's kind of why we're going mm. out there. Um, stay at the lake house, that's save awesome. some cost on lodging and see some family. Um, yeah, it'll be fun. Cool. Anyway, what are we talking about today? <laughs> All <laughs> yeah, right. So today we're going to, we're going to be talking about like athlete, athlete fatigue. Um, you know, what we're going to get into like, you know, what is fatigue? Um, what are some causes of fatigue? Uh, maybe some ways to uh, assess fatigue and, and um, you know, hopefully some mitigative uh, ways to, you know, implement into your training. And um, especially as coaches, it's, it's important for us to recognize fatigue when it's taking place in an athlete and some of the key markers to be looking out for. Right. And there's, there's obviously, <laughs> you know, like a pretty, pretty obvious form of fatigue. And I think maybe we tackle this from like most acute to most chronic would be a good, good way to approach this. But we sort of all know what it feels like to, um, you know, be going super hard, you know, you're sprinting and then there's, you know, it's only after 10 or 15 seconds, there's a pretty obvious (laughs) acute form of fatigue happening. Right. Um, and then there's, you know, sort of the, the frog in the frying pan sort of fatigue, you know, that you experience six months into your, your training year. Um, and I have some, some definitions here I found on the internet that I really liked. And I, I pulled these from, from studies, like from the abstracts of studies. Um, and so the kind of more acute form would be defined as exercise induced decrease in the ability to produce force. Right. So you can kind of think about that as you can't, you can't keep making the power that you're, you're trying to make. <laughs> Right. So we all know what that feels like. Burning legs, inability to turn the turn the pedals over. Um, and then the kind of maybe more general form of fatigue is fatigue best defined as the difficulty in initiating or sustaining voluntary activities. So an example of that in sort of the chronic sense, you know, is when you've been doing, you know, your VO2 block for for two or three weeks you have your last, you know, hardest workout and it's, it's hard to, it's hard to get out the door. Like it's hard to motivate to do that workout. And that, that is also fatigue, different sort of fatigue. Um, Something that you said a couple weeks ago, Andrew, that stuck with me, that was like pretty deep psychology lesson was you said that you can look around on the start line of a cross race towards the end of the season and kind of see by the people who are overdressed, like some people might have leg warmers on and others might not. And the people with the leg warmers are probably the ones who are like a little bit more general fatigued, I guess. Um, because they're just like that. You said they don't want to even suffer for the few minutes they're on the start line. Like they just don't even want to be cold for a couple minutes. Right. And that totally resonated with me. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. I was, yeah, I've like, been there. They don't have the, 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 you know, mental or emotional capacity to recognize that, a couple minutes into the race, they're going to warm up with a hard enough effort. You know, it's like mm-hmm. even thinking about how hard it's going to, how hard of an effort it's going to take to warm up is like too cumbersome in the moments. They're just like uh, leg warmers, arm warmers, 
Yeah. yeah. So, so this is kind of getting, getting ahead of ourselves here a little bit, but I think it's a good time to introduce this, this idea that I learned about when researching this topic. Right. So, um, we can get more into this in a second, but it's, it's to Drew's point, the very beginning of the podcast, it's a little hard. It's a little hard to, to disentangle, um, you know, the fatigue we're ex- whether or not the fatigue we're experiencing is mental or physical. Right. You know, and there's even a question mm. of like, are those things different? Right. <laughs> like, you know, are, are we, is our mind different than our body or is it all just so intertwined that it's, you can't disentangle it. And so, yes, I read about this concept, this, it's like a theory of, um, you know, like psychological fatigue, cognitive fatigue, um, called interoception, which is like a, it's a word I had never heard before. So I had to look it up. And so interoception is, um, like our perception, like our, you know, um, subconscious or conscious perception of like what's happening within our body. Right. So it's like our own personal assessment of like, what are going to be the like metabolic costs of like performing some task that you're, you're like getting into or, um, you know, like how much fuel we have available to ourselves And so, you know, you get really deep into a season or really deep into an effort and the way that we like perceive what's happening inside changes, right? We sort of, you might have, you know, complete full uh, glycogen storage, but like our perception of how much fuel we have available is, is starting to degrade, right? And so I think what's happening, uh, you know, like on those start lines is inside of your head, like deep in the recesses of your mind, <laughs> you are doing a calculation of like what your motivation is and what the cost is going to be of the effort. Like that you have to, that you know that you have to do to either do well there or to even like, you know, warm up, like we said. And as we get fatigued, you know, motivation wanes in that, that perception of like, what that cost is going to be starts to get, I think, out of, out of tune with reality. So we all, we've all had that experience, like towards the end of a race, um, you know, where we're like, I, I just, I don't think I can do it. You know, like last lap of a cross racer, maybe two laps to go. When you're at two laps to go, you're like, there's a ton more work that needs to be done for me to do well. And then as we kind of get, get closer to home, you know, especially if there's like, you know, like a good placing on the table, motivation goes up. And so then like the perception of that effort or the perception of like what we can do changes. And so it's, it's all very, very confusing. Um, Yes. The, the brain's role in fatigue is a uh, interesting one, or like we said, a controversial one. Cause I, I mean, and I don't think it's like one way or the other, but you have people say that fatigue is, totally brain centered and other people that say it's totally physiology based. It's probably a mix of both, but, um, I totally see where, and what made it stick out to me thinking about the brain and fatigue is that most of the time when we talk about physiological fatigue, it goes back to, uh, these catastrophic, uh, circumstances. So like off the, 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 the main, the main one that I think of is glycogen depletion. That's what we all say. Like, 
oh, like towards the end of a race, you just, you were depleted of glycogen. You ran out of sugar, you ran out of carbs. Well, if that was the case, uh, you wouldn't be able to keep pedaling at all. You know, like if you were completely depleted of glycogen, um, you would just shut down. And so, so there is your brain is somewhat playing a role in there because it's saying, okay, your glycogen depletion is getting low. So we need to like taper off. Cause if we run out, that's bad. And so, uh, I mean, obviously like your brain does what's best for our survival. That's like its number one job. And so knowing that survival is the number one thing, it says, okay, we're not going to let you get cl- like, we're not going to let ourselves run out completely of glycogen because then bad things happen. And so then it starts to cause fatigue. Your brain starts to cause these uh, sensations of fatigue, the burning legs and all that to make your body slow down so that you don't run out of glycogen. And so, uh, oh, there's something else I was going to say, but I just lost it. So, well, yeah, so that's maybe like a, yeah. a little bit of a random tangent off that. So, um, like I, I remember here in a couple of years ago, early on when I was starting to uh, race bikes, um, a teammate or you know friend or someone told me like you know on the start line you don't have to drink any of your electrolyte mix, but like put it in your mouth and like swish it around and then you can like spit it out because um, it somehow like something somehow triggers something in your brain that like mm-hmm. there's excess uh, you know glycogen available now, so it's it like releases a little bit more of its reserves um to, mm-hmm. to yeah. utilize in the effort is that is that kind of what you're talking about here is that that's that's, def- that's definitely part of this so yeah i mean the way that i've kind of heard it talked about is with like um you know like a carbohydrate solution as opposed to like mm-hmm. an electrolyte solution yeah and your your mouth has like it senses obviously the sugar like you know that you're mm-hmm. you're taking sugar in so when your body's like okay there's resources available like we can we can push. Um, yeah. It's kind of like the, the car, like on a conceptual point, like we know carbs have to go through your stomach and then get to your bloodstream and all that before they actually get into like to where we could use them. But there's like this like short circuit between your mouth and your brain, where as soon as the carbs touch your mouth, there's some kind of receptor and it sends it straight to the brain and lets your brain kind of know, Oh, Hey, carbs are on the way, which does kind of like, open the floodgates a little bit more. Yeah, right. That's a legit, that's like a legit thing. Yeah. Well, it, you know, and it, it works the other way too. And this is like really speaks to kind of the, the role the brain brain plays in uh, how we perceive fatigue. So there's, there's been some really interesting studies done, you know, in a, a couple of different formats. So one I, one I've read about is, you know, they have people exercising in a room, right. And they have a, uh, like a thermometer on the wall, like a digital thermometer on the wall. You know, and they they will keep the room at let's say seventy degrees, but they'll slowly turn up what it says the temperature is on the digital thermometer. You know, mm. so it says it's ninety degrees, but it's still only seventy degrees. Time mm. to exhaustion goes way down because you are like, "Oh my god, it's hot in here." You know, or similarly, you know, and this is super relevant to you know, uh, you know what's happening with wearables these days. Right. And this is this is why a lot of um, coaches actually caution against using stuff like whoops is, you know, they'll they'll um, like read to people at the beginning of their training session, like how they slept. Right. Like they're just, you know, in some cases they're they're actually telling them like what their real recovery is. But in other cases, like in the study group, they're saying like 
Drew, you slept really bad, man. You're in the red. You know, and then they have they have you, and then they have, you know, another version of you who they tell, like, dude, you slept like a freaking baby. I don't care how you feel. You are, like, ready to go. You know, and those people perform differently, right? You know, and so your brain, like, how, how you think you're doing or, like, how you think it's going to go plays a huge role in, like, what your perception is. Yeah. No for the, for those arm. of us who aren't watching, <laughs> Drew does not have a whoop. Sorry. Um, for that so exact I, reason. Yeah. I think I think a nugget for all of our listeners um, is maybe, like, you know, use a whoop, use your wearables. You know, I think there's there's good data there. I think it kind of captures overall trends. But, you know, just because your whoop says or your body battery says you're you're in the red doesn't mean you're going to have a bad performance. And uh, yep. I almost don't want to tell you all this this part, but just because, you know, you're in the green or your body battery is 100 doesn't mean that you're also going to have, you know, the, mm-hmm. the best ride of your life. So, yeah. Yeah, we, we, so we've I all had, read uh, about, we, we've all read about that, you know, athlete who wins the race while they're sick or something, right? Like just like some obvious thing that should have been a detriment to their performance, but um, you know, they, they still persevere. So it's just example that just because you, your wearable says that you're ready to perform doesn't always mean that's the case. Go ahead, Drew. Yeah. So um, oftentimes when I have this like fatigue conversation with Dylan and since he's not here, I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and um, fill in for him. Oh, this one time I did a video and I read a study article on uh, this guy and that, cause that's how Dylan starts every sentence. Um, <laughs> But he said this to me multiple times to the point where it stuck. And one of the studies that Dylan has researched is uh, they had runners do an all out, you know, whatever it was, like four laps on a, on a track. And they said, you're going to do four laps all out, um, totally like empty the tank. And, and then when they finish their fourth lap, the researchers say, oh, actually, you've got one more. And they still somehow keep going uh, at the like at a pretty good pace for the last lap. And so it's this idea of like they told them to empty the tank. So if they truly emptied the tank or no, 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 it wasn't a full lap. It was just like at the end, they made them sprint. So they said uh, they did their four laps. And then at the end of it, they said, okay, now do it like, no, no, no. Like keep going for 15 seconds as hard as you can go. And so they should have emptied the tank. Um, and, and so the athletes did that as best as they could. But when they were told to sprint at the end, they were able to tap into some kind of reserve and sprint for 15 seconds. Cause they, I guess it's, you know, if it's only 15 seconds, then they're like, okay, I can do that. But well, that yeah, was that's, after they were told to empty the tank. And so it's like the psychological side of it. Well, yeah. And it's, um, most of the time we, we know to your point, Drew, that the brain will slow us down before we truly need to stop. However, bad the, one, happen. <laughs> the one exception to this that I've, I've sort of read about is in like um, people doing like ultra distance stuff or even like Ironman distance events in the heat. You'll, mm-hmm. yeah, you'll hear heat, anecdotes yeah. about people um, like pushing through, um, you know, overheating and then they end up with heat stroke. So that's, yep. it, it is, it is, however, like as much as we want to be like really tough, you know, and like push as close as we can to like whatever our actual physical limit is sometimes right. <laughs> you can actually you know if you're tough isn't tough enough like you can push past that and yeah know, really really mess yourself up yeah everything that i've read says that the heat heat is probably the number one outlier of that of that 
scenario um, where your brain doesn't quite get it right. And they don't know why that is, but <laughs> that's where it tends to go wrong is in the heat. But I guess to sum it up, and this and this this image is always what I think of in my head to help clarify this, is uh, is you've got these two walls. And so we're always battling these two walls. And the outer wall, or the one that's further away, is our true physiological uh, maximum. You know, if you were to go past this true physical output line or this wall, bad things would happen like organ failure or potentially death. You know, like that's if you were to truly hit your physical limit. But before you ever get to that, that outer wall, you get, you hit a first wall and that is your psychological wall, your mental wall. Um, and so as athletes, we're always trying to push both of these walls further and further along, um, like our physical maximum and our psychological maximum. Um, and at the same time, we're also trying to make them go as close to each other as possible. Because if you can, if you're, if you can mentally push yourself as close to your true physical output, then obviously you're going to tap into more, more of your physical capability. Whereas probably with newer athletes, the, the gap between those two walls is going to be a lot wider. And so Mm -hmm. the more developed an athlete becomes, the closer and closer those walls become, um, but you're always, always going to hit that first wall, the psychological wall or the mental wall before you hit your true physical output because it's like a safety mechanism our brain has created. Yeah, well, let's, let's, um, let's maybe start to get into like some specifics here. Let's like get into some, some efforts and kind oh, of wait, discuss. Wait, wait, wait. I did have one more question. Sorry. Sorry. I had one more question to pose. Um, and maybe this goes with where we're going. I don't know. But so I wanted to ask, is there a difference between fatigue and pain? Um, uh, yeah, I, th- I think there is. I think there is. So, you know, um, to answer that question, I'm, I'm thinking in my head about, you know, like an FTP style effort or or critical power, right? Where, um, you know, we are producing a lot of lactate, you know, and and there's the hydrogen ions that come along with that and that kind of burning sensation in our legs, right? That, that can definitely be described as pain. Um, Mm -hmm. but we, we can achieve a pseudo metabolic physiological steady state at that, at that level of exertion, to where that pain can be really sustained. So, um, you know, we're not necessarily, yeah, please, I mean, please we're fatiguing down. <laughs> or we're fatiguing a little bit, like over the course of that effort. But like, if you're kind of riding that line, you know, you're able to sustain that effort for, in some cases, a really long time, you know? And so, mm-hmm. you know, if we go back to our definition of exercise, uh, fatigue is exercise induced decrease in the ability to produce force. Mm. you know, we're still able to produce that same force, right? If we're riding at 300 Watts, that's your critical power, you know, and you can keep doing that. Like that, that ability is not declining yet. You know, we're experiencing pain, but not necessarily experiencing fatigue. Now we know that, you know, that effort becomes mentally harder to do the deeper we get into it. So maybe there's a, a mental fatigue happening there. Um, mm-hmm. but not a, a physical fatigue. And yeah, so it's that's like, good. that's a good, what you said. Yeah. You said the, the ability to produce the force, that's when it starts to switch from pain to fatigue. <laughs> like, yeah, that's going to hurt. Like riding at FTP hurts. That's pain. 
but you're still able to put out the power uh, or produce that force. And so until you aren't able to hit that power or produce that force, that's when it turns from not only is it pain, but it's pain and fatigue. Yeah. Okay. Well, and that, I think that actually leads us very well into our, our next, our next little section here, which is um, like why, why we fatigue within like a specific effort. And so, you know, um, you know, we think about our, our power duration curve and, um, you know, we can do different amounts of power for, for different amounts of time. So we can do, you know, more power for a one minute effort than a five minute effort and more for a five minute effort than a 10 or 20 minute effort. And the reason why we fatigue at those different intensities is going to be a little bit different, but what it all boils down to within like a, you know, a single effort is it's, it's, we're metabolically limited, which means that we, we cannot, we can no longer, um, produce the ATP, the amount of ATP necessary to generate like whatever the force is or the power is that we're, we're trying to produce. So, you know, in like a sprint, you know, you want to do a thousand Watts for as long as you can. The reason why you can't just keep doing that is because you don't have enough phosphocreatine left to keep, keep doing that effort. And so kind of going down the line, then we get to like a one minute effort, two, three minute effort. You know, in those cases, it's, we, we cannot, we cannot like burn enough, you know, sugar glycogen to keep doing that effort to produce the amount of force that we're asking our muscles to do, you know, and then, you know, once we get into kind of the, the longer efforts, then it's, you know, it starts to get a little bit more fuzzy, at least as far as, as far as I know, or as far as my understanding is, but I think the way that we can sort of delineate these things a little bit is, is by fiber type, right? So the, we, we know that the fast twitch fibers are going to be more fatigable. Um, you know, whereas the slower twitch fibers, the more oxidative ones are going to take longer to fatigue. Now, the one other thing like that's not metabolic per se, that causes fatigue in these scenarios. And we're all going to be very familiar with what this feels like is, is the, like muscle acidosis that comes along with producing a ton of lactate. And so we've, we've established on earlier podcasts for, for our loyal listeners out there that lactate itself is not a cause for fatigue, but the hydrogen ions associated with it bring down the pH in our muscles. You know, so we get that burning sensation and, and what's happening there, the mechanism there, as far as I understand, is that when we lower the pH of the muscle, the enzymes responsible for like aiding in those, um, you know, chemical reactions that are making that, that ATP are are no longer able to work well. So, uh, enzymes work best within a certain temperature range. Um, so this also kind of gets into overheating, but they also work best within a certain pH. And so like those reactions don't occur then and we have to, to stop. (laughs) Acidosis just sounds painful. It does, doesn't, doesn't it? doesn't sound like a pleasurable thing. Yeah. So, so you know, our bodies are always trying to, um, like, maintain a certain homeostasis, right? Like, within mm. the cell, there's, like, very, like, the body needs very particular conditions to work well. And then once that environment becomes hostile to those mechanisms happening, you know, no bueno. <laughs> Um, but I think, I think in these cases, this is, this is like, 
you know, where it's most easy to identify fatigue, right? I, I think like this is the closest, like a one minute effort or like a sprint or something is probably the closest that I think any of us come to um, like actually shutting it down when we have to shut it down. Like I think that to use your analogy, Drew, that's when mm-hmm. those walls are the closest together. Cause we, you know, like the, the driver of the machine, which is our body, like know mm. that we don't have that far to go. You know, like we, we yes. were thinking to ourselves like, Oh, I only got 10 seconds. I can do 10 more seconds. Right. But I, I'm sure you two, as well as our listeners out there have done like, you know, an effort like that before where, you know, you really probably could not have gone harder. <laughs> yeah, I do these. So I've got, uh, two different, types of power intervals I do. And I define, I define a power interval as hard as you can. The effort level should be as hard as you can go for the given amount of time. So if it's a two minute power interval versus a 30 second power interval, those are going to be different depend because of the length of time. But I also have these and that's just sustained effort. So if you think you could hold 450 for a minute, that would be what you would try to average for the, the whole minute. But I have these other power intervals that I call peak to fade power intervals, which basically what you just said it just throws the whole idea of pacing out the door. So like it kind of, and along and pacing and fatigue, I think are, are correlated. So you kind of throw the idea of pacing slash fatigue out the door. And it's a, it's usually a three minute effort. I'll usually do it on a climb and you basically, as soon as the timer starts sprint, <laughs> like sprint, like there, it's a 10 second effort or a 30 second effort. And so what happens is like, you're, you're in the, you're in the cave, like, 45 seconds into the effort and you've got two minutes left. And so it's like, you're trying to just scratch and claw your way through the last two minutes. And usually I I don't know if there's like science to support this, but I think usually what ends up happening is you at the end of that two, that end of that three minute effort, you should be right around your FTP. And I find it pretty accurate. Like I'll start out the first minute. I'll be like 600 plus Watts, like smashing it. Yes. And then the last 30 seconds, I'm like, this sucks. And I'm like barely holding FTP. And I'm like, it's a hard that those intervals. I feel like those types of intervals are the days when I'm making those two walls get closer together. Like the, the mental and the physical, I'm like, Oh man, those are hard. Would you, would you consider that a workout to be a success if you actually had a peak to fade or like what, if, what if you or an athlete um, ends up starting to like ramp up at the end? Like, is that, did, did they mm. not execute it properly? Um, you know, this whole, whole idea well, of like throwing out. Right. Uh, well, know, let me, let me say something turn, about that. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so um, I, I think this actually is in, you know, a, a book that a few of us have read endure, you know, that, mm. that really explores this topic, you know, in, in kind of like a really broad way, but they, they talk about, or they look at, um, the splits for like world record, um, like miles or like pursuit efforts, like a 4k pursuit, you know, so like, like sort of like a VO2 effort, like a four or five minute effort. And they look at how the split times change like lap to lap. You know, if you break that down to like four or five laps and for like (laughs) the author states that for, for like every world record that has ever been done, (laughs) um, the first lap is the fastest second lap is the slowest and then it kind of slowly goes back up to where the fourth lap the whatever the final lap is is not quite as fast as the first but it it like 
kicks kicks back up a bit. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, th- I think that they're, I guess what they're saying is that there's something special about, um, you know, that pacing strategy, or at the very least, I, I think what's happening is that, you know, at lap two, we still have a long way to go. And so our perception of fatigue or like what we can handle is like, we're like, really, it's really daunting. We're like, oh my gosh, I, I don't know that I can, you know, hold this for another two or three laps, you kind of slow down a little bit. But then as you get towards the end, you know, to kind of all of the analogies you've been talking about, Drew, you're like, oh, it's only one more minute. And, mm-hmm. you know, like I can do something special here. Like I can I can win or I can set a record. And so we, we sort of then, you know, push back beyond. So I think even within an effort of, let's say, four minutes, three minutes, two minutes, one minutes, those those walls, like their relationship to each other is, is changing. <laughs> Mm, yeah you know so motivation pushes that wall out and the perception of like how much left we have is is pushing that pushing that wall out and um nobody's trying to empty the tank on lap two for a lap race <laughs> is what you're saying well yeah well and i think it's i think it's funny so it's like one of the tough things about training at least like the way that i think almost all modern coaches prescribe training is like unlike a 4k pursuit or a mile run you know, I'm telling my athletes to do a four minute effort, right? So it, you know, when you're doing, uh, you know, a race, the faster you go, the quicker it's done. And so the motivation is different than if you know, there's just a finite amount of time that has to be completed. Like I can go harder right now, but I still have to finish this minute. (laughs) Like the interval doesn't end until minute four, Mm. which, which is really, I think, uh, Mentally tough. Right. I've never I, know one the line. <laughs> I know that one of the psychological tools that you can use to improve this is chunking, where you basically try to break up a big effort into smaller efforts. Um, I mean, like every time I have somebody do a 20 minute FTP test, I say, you should really break it up into five minute chunks. And, re- and every five minutes, you kind of reassess and, uh, Mainly that's so that they don't go out too hard, like you said, and then they can't finish their 20 minute test. But I know that chunking is a, is a, a proven strategy to improve your effort over a long duration. Yeah. And one thing that I actually kind of employ on myself when I'm doing a really, really hard effort, um, is, is giving myself, um, an out, you know, I say, I'm going to go super hard now. Like if I'm, if I'm in a race, like I'm going to go as hard as I can for this breakaway, you know, and if it doesn't work, you know, like if I get caught, I can just stop if I want. And so for me, the, the reason I do that, I mean, I know it sounds kind of like a, like maybe a loser mentality, but you never stop. Like you never end up stopping. Like you, you get to that next checkpoint and you're like, well, I think I can keep going. But I think like knowing that you're not, you're, you're not going to, your body doesn't have to do it if you don't want to, I think like frees up some mental energy to like focus on what you're doing, you know, cause sure. you're lessening the, the future cost that you're going to have to to pay to keep doing that effort. That so analogy, like sort of, go ahead. <laughs> that analogy you just gave sounds like an addicted gambler. Like I'm going to go all in and then, I, and then I'll leave after I go all in. But I never actually leave after I go all in. I stick around and spend all my money. <laughs> That's what it sounded like. 
Yeah, no, that's well. I guess it's maybe a good thing then that you know I've We're chosen bike, bike, bike racing instead of uh, high stakes gambling. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, I mean, bike racing is gambling to some extent, at least on the road. You know, every time you go up the road, that's a gamble. <laughs> I watched in, that, in, the sunny cre- the- in the in the Sunny <laughs> King replay. So many people were going solo, and I'm like, so dumb. Like, it's like you're going all in on like a two and a nine. Like, come on, bro. Like, <laughs> everybody knows that a two and a nine are the worst two cards or whatever. So, like, don't do that. I think two and a nine is a, two, is a two, good seven. combo. Two seven offsuit. Two seven. My bad. Wait, are we talking about <laughs> poker or blackjack? This is. I I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. I'm just saying, don't go solo in a crit. That's stupid. Unless you're <laughs> like Tanner Ward, maybe, but not the junior. The junior should have reeled himself back in. And if I'm off the front solo and nobody comes with me, I'm shutting it down immediately. Well, so here here's an interesting thing about juniors, right? Is that their like prefrontal cortex that's responsible for uh, their ability to like look into the future is, is less enough. developed. It's not there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so for them, you know, they, they can go as hard as they want any moment because like their actual capacity to like do this calculation that I'm talking about where you're like, all right, well, if I do this now that I have, you know, this much left later, like that all goes out the window. And so oh, yeah. to some extent, maybe they're better for that. Cause they can, if it pays off, like if they, like if they it works well, but uh, usually right. it doesn't like it's, it's very common to see, uh, you know, fast juniors <laughs> come flying backwards through the field. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I, the best couple crits that I've had, there was one summer where I, I knocked out like top 10 results in a bunch of these local crits, um, which I know I just said those were like my top results, but that's the sad truth. Um, and that year I like ha- was probably my least focused year of training. And so I went into all those crits thinking I have a very finite number of matches to burn. And so I ain't doing nothing. <laughs> and so I like sat in and conserved and I used all my matches in like the last 10 minutes of the race where it really mattered and it worked like, but now I go into races with more fitness and I'm thinking, oh, I got a pretty solid match book. And so from like, from the, t- from the, from the line, I'm just burning matches left and right. And then I get to the <laughs> end of the race and I ain't got none. I'm like, dang, I know I'm more fit than I am now, but my results were better when I was less fit because I've raced so much smarter. You had a uh, race week. I, th- I always tell all my athletes, especially my strong ones, you got to race, race like you're really, really weak. That's mm-hmm. At least I think for like, um, you know, for the part of the race where, where things are going to go. Yeah. Um, but anyway, let's let's maybe you know keep moving here and kind of mm-hmm. um, move move into explaining fatigue as it relates to a longer effort, like a full ride, like a you know the scenario that I'm kind of thinking about, that, or at least the scenario that's like most interesting to me is if you're doing you know a race like Unbound, right? So you you have this pace in mind where metabolically you know you're not going to run out of muscle glycogen or liver glycogen. Because you're 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 keeping it, you know, below your LT1. You know, you're using mostly fats. You're taking on fuel. Like you're not doing, you're not burning so much that you're exceeding the uh, the amount of carbohydrate that you can absorb, right? Then let's say you set it to you set the power to 180 watts, and you're going to ride for 200 miles. 
you know, theoretically, like from a metabolic perspective, you should be able to just do this indefinitely, right? So like, why is it that we can't, like what, what happens? And I have, I have a few possible explanations. And in setting up this scenario, I've kind of already painted a picture of explaining why, <laughs> you know, why typically people have to slow down, right? Like if you, if you go too hard, um, you know, you can either deplete your muscle glycogen, your liver glycogen, you go hypoglycemic, your brain's not getting glucose, and your body is both out of fuel and your mind is like, this is horrible, I can't do this. Um, but barring that, why, 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 what do you think happens? I don't know if either of you have done, you know, a, a race of this distance before, but maybe we can talk about what happens there. And a super long race. Right. Um, so you hear, you hear what I'm saying, right? Like we're doing a pace that should be sustainable for like, you know, we're looking at our power duration curve and we're at that, that part where it sort of flattens out. Like, why can't we do that for 10 hours or however long? Man, yeah, the, I think like part of me goes to efficiency, you know, like even if you are putting food in your body, and maybe we talked about this a while back when we were talking about the 24-hour Pueblo race, but it seems like your stomach just can't handle it and like for that long. Like putting goose and uh, super dense, you know, drink mix in your belly, uh, doing that for 10 hours, by the end of the 10 hours, your stomach's kind of wrecked, you know, like... It's not, it doesn't feel, your stomach doesn't feel as good as it did in hour one. Um, so I don't know if that well, has something well, to do with I think we're assuming that that's or... not the case. Oh. Right, Andrew, you're saying, we're assuming that we were bringing on ample uh, fuel sources. Yeah, although although Drew does bring up a good point. <laughs> I think that that's something that I, I actually didn't even think about, but is is super, I think, relevant to our listeners, which is, yeah, at a certain point, you know, maybe maybe we can't take in the calories anymore. Because your stomach right. maybe, just gets tired. I don't know. Well, and I think, yeah, I think maybe you're two, sick of eating yeah, there, goose. <laughs> right, there's two sides. There's like palate fatigue where you just like, yeah. you know, all the different flavors just sound terrible. Um, which I think you can, I think you can train that. Um, like I personally just only use one flavor. So I'm just, mm. I always know what to expect. Um, but then I think there's also, there, there, there may be this concept of like, I think where you're getting at Drew is like your gut is actually tired. Like mm-hmm. if you haven't trained your gut to take in that amount of fuel for that duration of time, your your maybe your stomach just gets really tired and can't process the uh, the food that you're or you know hydration or whatever it is that you're putting into into your body. Yeah, yeah. So, and quite so, honestly, Andrew, I uh, I always thought that you could that as long as you kept putting <laughs> you put, keep putting food in your body, keep putting money in the bank, uh, you could go for as long as you wanted. Am I wrong in thinking that? Uh, I mean, yeah, I guess it's it's sort of up for debate. <laughs> you know, I mean, if we, uh, you know, if we look at like ultra runners, right? Like, you know, I, well, I that's kind of examined though, because running is like so hard on your joints. Well, right? sure, but I they mean, still do it. It is, but, they- but okay, let's let's back up. Forget running. This is not a running <laughs> podcast. Let's, <laughs> you know, for for unbound two hundred, yeah. you know, we're twenty four hours of old pueblo, right? right. Like. Keegan, Keegan was doing a pace that he thought was sustainable for the whole time. And so maybe what's happening here is that he just got his number wrong. Like maybe he actually was, uh, you know, above that LT1. And so mm-hmm. he did just run out of glycogen, 
you know, and then that's, you know, game over. He's got to, you got to slow down because you no longer have that fuel source. He didn't run but, out of glycogen, but he got close. <laughs> right. Scientifically, <laughs> you know, physiologically, there was probably yeah, still a little. Sorry. There, but, um, but, but to kind of go back to the, the food thing for a second, I think a big culprit there that's, you know, hopefully something that people are thinking about is, um, you know, like a very, very slow dehydration that occurs, right? And so, you know, when we start to get dehydrated or we get hotter, two things happen. One, when we get dehydrated, our plasma volume actually drops. And so our efficiency goes down because it's harder to, to kind of like push out that blood because it's become thicker mm. um, from, the, from the dehydration. So that, that definitely happens, right? Like water is, you know, we all know like the, the one thing that we, we need to stay alive um, or maybe to keep going. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But then with the, with the heat thing, you know, if you start to get hot over the course of that effort or you start at 6 a.m. and then you're eight hours in and starts to warm up, maybe you overdressed, um, cause you were fatigued going to the race and you didn't want to be cold. <laughs> then, um, mm-hmm. you know, the blood starts to get directed towards your skin and away from your gut. Right. Cause like the blood goes to the skin to kind of help us cool back down. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's definitely part of it. Um, so, you know, the most obvious things to avoid, you know, in the, this scenario is like not getting too hot, not getting dehydrated, not running out of muscle glycogen. So if I do all so, those things, I can go forever. So you're saying, well, and, and not quite. And so <laughs> there's, there? there's, okay. Well, there's, <laughs> there's two things that I, um, that I, that I came up with as explanations for this. So there's a central reason, which is, um, you know, relating to the brain. Right. And so two things there, one is CNS fatigue, Right. So like the Central longer nervous we, system. system. Yeah. So the longer we go, you know, if you could actually dynamically track your HRV over the course of an effort, which you, you can now do actually, um, that HRV is going to go down. Right. Cause we're like taxing, you know, like the central nervous system is like anything else where like it eventually gets tired. And so we have maybe less neural drive. So the signals going from our brain, to our muscles is getting weaker, Mm. you know? And and I think, you know, this is probably related to like cognitive fatigue as well. Like nobody finishes an eight hour work day, you know, and is like as mentally sharp as they were at the start. Um, But one interesting thing is I think this is trainable, you know, and we talked about this a little bit before the podcast started, but you know, those really exceptional athletes, not only are they physically more capable, but they tend to actually have more mental durability as well. Right. Like this, this fatigues less. So that's, Dude. that's pretty cool. And, and it might be neurochemical. Like, I don't know to what extent we're like running short on neurotransmitters, <laughs> you know, or like we have um, something like adrenal fatigue, you know, so you start the race and you're excited and adrenaline's going off and that's, that's boosting our effort. But eventually like that adrenal gland is tapped out. There's no more adrenaline left. Um, and adrenaline is a potent, potent, um, you know, benefactor of performance. Um, I just started reading the, which book is it? Uh, the talent code. I had to look to see which one was missing. (laughs) 
on my book to read <laughs> my books to read pile. Um, the talent code, which says basically that all skill can be uh, I don't know how to phrase this. All skill can be pointed back to this one white matter whatever that's in our brains called myelin. I'm sure you've heard of it, Andrew. Have you heard of myelin? I haven't actually. What? All right. Something I know that Andrew doesn't know. Let's go. <laughs> All right. You got to read this book, dude. You'd love it. That uh, sounds really I had, interesting. Yeah. I had heard of myelin before, but not to this extent. And uh, the author of this book, I don't know who it is, really does a good job of, um, of arguing his case. But basically, myelin is this white matter that basically, like, you've got uh, cell or nerves, and then you've got synapses between those nerves that are always happening. Um in your brain. So like every time he uses the example of, of tennis, but we'll use cycling. So every time you pedal, uh, there's so many nerve, like there's like thousands of nerves getting messages, getting synapses happening between nerves in your brain. Like you like your foot, your leg, your knee, your arms, your everything, every little detail of that movement synapses are getting fired between nerves and myelin is this white matter that wraps around the is it the synapses it's like wraps around the tunnels that these Mm. nerves are getting shot or these synapses are getting shot through so basically the analogy he says is the first time you jump on a bike and you're pedaling uh you're probably like those those nerves getting fired are it's like an unpaved bumpy road and the message is just like getting clogged Mm. through there and it's like not Mm. firing and as you do it more and more and more so this is like the whole idea of practice makes perfect and he says that myelin is that like what what is happening when we say practice makes perfect is myelin is just getting wrapped and wrapped and wrapped around that same nerve or thousands of nerves and synapses happening to where the point to the point where um, now you've turned that bumpy, chunky road into like a super speed highway where it's like, and it's like shooting these messages. So now like you, you talk to a professional cyclist, they've pedaled millions and millions of pedal revolutions to the point where those, those synapses are firing so efficiently because of the myelin. I think wait, so I don't even know what you're having some technical difficulties yeah, here. I but. Don't even, you can't hear me. Oh, we, we couldn't for a second there, but I think oh, no. we, we got, we got the analogy. Okay, good. And that's so, awesome. Yeah. That, that's cool. So it, it, the good news, I think for all of our listeners is that this isn't like a dead end. It's, it's not as if like, uh, inevitably our brains are going to be fatigued, but one of the takeaways that I can kind of provide for our listeners is, um, there's different things. It's not just a physical exertion that causes CNS fatigue, but if we, work like a work day, right? Like we, if we have a really technically challenging job, you're like a scientist or a, I don't know, like a stock trader or something like that. Somebody who's doing something that's like mentally taxing. When you get to your ride, you know, like if you decide that you're going to ride at the end of the day, you're going to have less, you know, you're going to come into that with more CNS fatigue. And so you're going to be able to exert less on your ride. So if you have a really challenging ride come up, it might make sense to prioritize that over other mentally taxing things. And so they've, they've done studies on this, right. Where, you know, they have people do like a mentally taxing computer game and then they have them do like a time to exhaustion test. And for the individuals who just like sat and twiddled their thumbs, 
they had a much greater time to exhaustion than the individuals who had to like, you know, play Tetris for two hours. Yep. So what you're saying is if we have the capacity, we should work out before we work. That, that is what I'm saying. You know, all else equal, you know, this becomes tricky in practicality when it comes yeah. to like, you know, if you're going to ride at 6am, you got a hard ride, you know, what, when does breakfast happen? Right. So that, mm. there are some confounders here, but, but yeah, all else equal. I, I think so. Um, now, <laughs> unfortunately for us, for, for those of us who do want to be able to ride 200 watts for 12 hours, there's another source of fatigue. And I really, I think, you know, this one is maybe uh, more finite or maybe there's like less that we can do about it. But there's a peripheral reason for fatigue at this really long timeline. Um, and so when I say peripheral, I mean like in, in the muscle itself. And that that thing is um, there's like uh, sodium potassium channels that allow those, um, you know, those messages from the brain to actually communicate with the muscle. So there's a sodium potassium channel and then there's a, like a, like a calcium receptor or a, I don't, I don't know the exact uh, terminology for it, but, but calcium is released. Um, and that's what, what, you know, allows like the actin and myosin to bind and, and the muscle to actually, you know, contract. Right. And so these things can actually be depleted. Um, and, you know, I'm sure everybody's thinking like, okay, well, you know, I can just consume, I can consume sodium, potassium, calcium, and maybe that'll, that'll resolve it. And, and I don't know if this is the case or not. I'm sure like maintaining a good electrolyte balance plays a role in this, but you know, these are things that are happening like intramuscularly. So, you know, I'm personally not sure how we, we combat that, but I'm sure what you were saying about the central fatigue of, you know, if you do it enough, then we build up a resilience to it or kind of increase our efficiency at it probably Mm -hmm. applies here as well. But, um, the point is overall just that there's a point at which like the muscles are like not no longer able to signal for contraction, you know? And so it's, it's sort of like, uh, you know, a short circuit, which is a real bummer because, you know, I I don't know that you can will your way through that, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So eventually things just stop working. Things stop working. Well, and, and I think that's a main contributing factor, or not, maybe not main, but major contributing factor for like the power curve. Um, the, the harder the effort, I think it's the more, um, what, did you, what, what were you saying earlier? The, uh, you were talking about like hydrogen ion release or something. Yeah. Um, but there's like a bonding that takes place between like the hydrogen ions and the calcium that prevents the muscle contractions from the, like your, your muscles to recirculate the, the calcium and then it prevents, eventually prevents the muscle contractions. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, this starts to get really, really complex and um, you know, we're, we're not physiologists here per se, we're coaches. So we, you know, we try and understand these things, but they are pretty complex. And I think even to, to the scientists out there, I think some of these mechanisms are still, um, a little bit, a little bit debatable or still being studied. So it's, a uh, it's hard, it's hard to have a, an answer. It was hard for me to find an answer about this that was satisfactory, which is cool. 
that's it, it makes it kind of an exciting uh, topic to study. Um, but yeah, things stop working for all sorts of reasons. And we've already talked about, you know, pH, heat, you know, enzyme activity. Um, but then also, you know, things start to, to kind of leak and they start to kind of come, they, they, you know, things are no longer like where they're supposed to be. So things like leak out of the sarcoplasmic reticulum and sounds these other like kind a, of, um, sounds like an aging issue. <laughs> leaking <laughs> yeah what's that got to do um, with riding 200 miles <laughs> just kidding but anyway maybe this is a a good a good time to kind of um you know get into our final kind of stage of fatigue which is um you know what we can talk we can describe as like chronic fatigue not like you know the the pathology of chronic fatigue oh like we could call this we could call this forest fatigue because it's the big <laughs> picture fatigue. Big picture, right? Not so what we're talking about here, trees. yeah, yeah. What we're talking about here is, you know, uh, why, you know, why we can't just like keep keep training indefinitely. Like why eventually we have to to slow down, um, take a rest week, take rest days, take an off season. Um, you know, how do we end up with overtraining syndrome? Or more scary, um, there's this thing called rhabdomyolysis. Have you guys heard about this? Yeah, heard of it. Yeah, so really so ra- rhabdo for short. It doesn't. Yeah. I don't think it often happens to endurance athletes, but it's basically where your body starts to like break down its own muscle at a really mm. high rate, which then like that protein from the muscle gets processed. I think in the 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 kidneys maybe. Um, and then you have like kidney failure because your body is like processing so much protein, but basically it's like a muscle wasting disease and it comes from people who are like training too hard. So it happens to, I think maybe like weightlifters most commonly or like team sport athletes who are doing a lot of resistance training, Mm -hmm. but there is a, a point like, you know, in kind of like the broad sense, like in the forest sense where like, if you push those two walls too close together, like you, you can mess yourself up too often. What you're saying, yeah, yeah, too often for too long, right? Dang. Um, so I don't think that we have to instill in our athletes that they need to take rest days, rest weeks, off seasons. But I do think it's important to kind of discuss this topic and maybe understand better why. Mm-hmm. So, does anybody have any? kind of thoughts like general ideas of like why 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 you need a rest day or like why you can't just like keep hammering it every day uh, i mean just the, like a practical sense yeah i don't know the physiology but i know that um just mentally at the end of a cross season it's it's pretty fatiguing like the travel you're racing you're making sure your bikes are okay uh you're dealing with sponsors like by the end of four months of all out doing all of that stuff plus racing in there yeah like that's like kind of the whole point um like i'm pretty wiped like i'm ready for a couple weeks off because it's nonstop go 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 every weekend i mean i know that i feel that way especially at the end of a cross season probably because of the emphasis i put on cycle cross whereas like crit racing i i'm putting more and more of an emphasis on it but like I don't have put all this pressure on myself. So I kind of show up a little bit more relaxed and all that, but 
yeah, there is this mental side of it where I'm like, I'm ready for a break. Like, uh, I couldn't tell you why that is, but, um, and timing that is really important to where like, hopefully that happens like right at nationals. And then I, and then after nationals, I take my break. (laughs) If it happens a month before nationals and my training, uh, stops, then that's not, that's, I I did something wrong there, but well, yeah, and maybe, and I don't, I don't know for sure that this is the case, but maybe that's like a a slow accumulation of CNS fatigue, right? Like focus requires mm-hmm. a demand from our like nervous system; it requires mental energy, and so maybe we're like slowly running that dry. Yeah, and an, another like kind of a more physiological basis of this is that we can slowly run muscle glycogen dry, right? So if you do three workouts in a row that deplete your muscle glycogen by 25% each. By the time we get to the fourth, we're, we're at zero. And so muscle glycogen can be repleted between workouts, but I think it's harder than I think people think because unless we're taking in a ton of carbohydrate, you know, like that carbohydrate isn't, is not just all going straight back into the bank. You know, a lot of it is just going to be used for energy you know, to kind of fuel your day, fuel your recovery. Um, but that's, that's one explanation, right? And that, that can definitely happen. And like we sort of, I'm sure our listeners have experienced like empty legs, you know, you get to like that fourth day or maybe you even get to the second day of like a, like a double header cycle cross weekend mm-hmm. and your legs, your legs won't go. And, and maybe you didn't, you know, eat right after your ride or maybe you just like didn't have a big carbohydrate dinner. You didn't have breakfast. Our brains, our brains only operate off of carbs. Am I correct there? The only fuel source that our brains can use are carbs. I feel like I've I've actually heard that the brain actually likes lactate. Mm. So the brain, the brain can apparently also operate on lactate, which is Is lactate lactate. carb. Well, (laughs) that's, that's a good question, my friend. So I, you know, I, Mm -hmm. I don't technically, I'm not sure, but, but lactate is, it looks a lot like glucose. Oh, all so right, then, yeah. if, if glucose Carb. is like a six carbon molecule, uh, lactate is a three carbon molecule of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. So it's like a partially metabolized glucose molecule. Mm. So they're, they're pretty similar biochemically, I think. Yeah. I just remember reading that like our, our brains only use, whether it was glucose or glycogen or carbs or whatever, but only carbs. <laughs> So like, I don't know. Yeah. Doing a bunch of very hard mental things the day, the morning of a race is maybe not good. And that's why I hate that though. Like I hate being unproductive, like sitting in a hotel room (laughs) and watching friends all day is not my way of preparing for a race. Like I hate being just bored all day or lazy. I'd much rather like read a, I don't know, a book or like do something more productive, but maybe that's not. I don't know. Yeah, you're burning out your glucose. Yeah, I'm burning out all my glucose because I'm sending it to my brain. (laughs) What were you gonna say, Adam? Yeah, what's the what's the fuel source that's kind of been more popularized over the last couple years? A lot of the world tour riders are using it, Um, like ketones. Ketones, yeah, yeah, that's another fuel source because those are produced. Our body naturally produces ketones. So, so ketones, ketones, yeah, are like um, they have something to do with our body's ability to burn fat. 
don't know if like um like a ketone is considered like an enzyme that makes burning fat more efficient. Um, but but in any case, the purpose of it or like the reason why people people are super psyched on it is because they allow us to sort of partition off muscle glycogen. They allow us to like save it and spare it. So like if mm-hmm. you're using ketone esters for you know your 200k race or your 200 mile race. The idea is by the time you get to the end, you'll have more glycogen left for the same effort. Mm-hmm. You know, like a, your tank will be full. Um, but yeah, there's, there's to kind of go back to the original question. There is a lot of things that happen to the body. Um, you know, and so some of those things, you know, and it's, it's hard to sort of understand the mechanisms for these things, but um, we can actually put ourselves into like a hormonal imbalance, mm-hmm. Um, like over the course of training. And I think part of this has to do with, um, you know, when we work out or when we stress the body, cortisol goes up, right? That's a stress hormone. Um, and somehow, you know, and, and if any of our listeners out there are, um, you know, doctors or biochemists, they can, they can correct us if any of this is not right. But um, I believe that that downregulates, you know, anabolic hormones like testosterone, you know, and so over the course of a, a training block or a training year, testosterone can actually start to to drop. Um, and so that that's one thing that we need to kind of allow um, rest to kind of you know uh, upregulate, get us back into balance. Um, and yeah, what else? Um, oxidative stress. You know, oxidative stress is created when we when we exercise. And at a certain point, this slowly just starts to accumulate, you know, and so they've looked at people, you know, who are experiencing like overtraining syndrome and they tend to have like higher biomarkers of oxidative stress. And so, you know, when oxidative stress occurs, you know, like a lot of the other things we talked about today, you know, our muscle function actually goes down, right? So, you know, if you just ride, you know, here's a good experiment that nobody should do. If you do sprints every day for seven days, your sprint is not going to get better on day seven. You know, it actually might go up after like a couple of days because, um, you know, like maybe our mechanical efficiency improves or we, you know, we we're actually getting like opened up, but then it's definitely going to start to decline, you know, and part of that is the, you know, the oxidative stress and, you know, the breaking down of the actual like, um, muscle cell environment, but, it's also like a depletion of like, uh, you know, neural, neural drive. Right. So like a lot of, um, a lot of people now are kind of talking about like readiness scores. Right. So like we've actually recently been able to like quantify our readiness to train. And so one of the the methods that I've heard about that I thought was pretty interesting was, um, grip strength as a, as a, as a marker of this. So it's like, you know, like maximum contraction, like how hard you can contract a muscle. And for whatever reason, they've, they've chosen grip strength. And so you'd have a device like a, a dynamometer or like you could use like a bathroom scale and you squeeze this thing as hard as you can, like first thing in the morning, you know, and as you get fatigued, like over the course of, you know, a training cycle, your grip is actually getting like weaker and weaker, <laughs> you know? And so we, <laughs> You know, we sort of all know the feeling of like, you know, coach gives you a couple of days off or gives you like a rest week or, you know, you know, you finish your off season 
and you are you are spry, like you're ready to you could punch a hole through a wall. <laughs> and so like there there's a lot to be said for for freshness and like how hard we can go when we're fresh. So I think that's that's a big part of of what's happening here. But on the other hand, you know, and this is this is kind of like getting really looking at the forest here is we need that stress. Like we, you know, we need to have enough stress to create adaptation and to get faster mm. to build fitness. Right. So I think the, the whole thing, what it all comes down to is a balance between like creating fatigue and allowing our bodies enough time to recover and become stronger. Right. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, there's like, um, there's overreaching and then there's overtraining, right? So it's what's commonly referred mm. to. Um, and overreaching is usually where your optimal training is taking place. Like you're kind of like, as you're preparing for peak season or um, pushing your limits during like the base season, you're kind of getting into that overreaching. And that's, that's how you're able to push those limits. And that's healthy. But then there's a super, super fine line between overreaching and overtraining. So it's like if you if you overreach too far, then you get into overtraining and you can't bounce back from a recovery day or even a recovery week. Sometimes overtraining syndrome can result in multiple weeks or months or um, depending on how f- how far into overtraining you are, um, even full seasons, you know, m- multiple seasons in a row uh, to recover from that. Um, but but I mean that that's what you're talking about, right? Is like. To, to try and optimize your training is to to try and get into that overreaching functional overreaching too far. I think it's functional. Yeah, exactly. That's how they call it. Um, the way okay, that so I fine. the way that I practically um, apply overreaching is I always do it at the end of a block because I'm like, hey, if you want to go, if you want to do your intervals a little harder or make your endurance ride a little longer, this is the weekend because next week you got a rest week. <laughs> Right. So as long as you don't like like really really overdo it, then then yeah, that would be a good time to kind of test the theory of overreaching. Like, put yourself in the tank because next week we don't have any critical workouts, so we're going to hit Tuesday or Wednesday. So even if you are a little bit more fatigued than normal, you should be good by next weekend. Well, cool. I th- I think that that I feel pretty satisfied with our our uh, yeah, explanations so, for so fatigue I'll just add, here. Add one 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 more thing here. So. Um, fatigue is super common, uh, not just in athletes. Um, in most athletes, you know, 99% of athletes are not full-time athletes, right? They, they, they've got jobs, they've got families, they've got just other stuff going on beyond sport. You know, there's only a small percentage of people who can actually dedicate their whole life to athletic performance. Um, but I was reading that there's like a, there's a study on like a, a, a two week period where they surveyed, uh, huge chunk of the U S population of like the workforce. And, um, it was like up to 38% of your average U S you know, full-time worker, you know, someone in the workforce, uh, reported fatigue. And that's just a general population. Um, so you throw athletics, you know, training, you know, for it's whether cycling, running, whatever you're doing, um, you throw that on top of all the stress and fatigue that you're building up from your work days. And it's like, it makes sense, right? I mean, like it, may, it makes sense that you just need to have these weeks off where you can recover because even just your, your general week is probably enough to put you in a state of fatigue. Um, so it's just something to keep in mind as well, that it's not just your athletics that, you know, is putting you into that state of fatigue. It, it's so many other factors in life. 
Um, and that's why it's good to periodize your training in such a way that you are giving yourself those recovery periods when you need them. Um, well, and that, otherwise that you're, you're not going to reach your potential. Right. And that touches on a really important thing that I think is maybe a, a great point to drive home here, which is, you know, the brain and the body can experience fatigue as you're saying, not just from athletics, but also from life. And so if you have that rest week coming up and if you can do it, you know, you should also, you know, try and maybe, you know, take some rest from work. Like this doesn't mean take it off, but, you know, try and create an environment for yourself where you can relax mentally as well. Um, which is to say, just because you aren't exercising hard doesn't mean that you're recovering. Right. Right. You know, if we're also, yeah, you know, if we, I make that we plan our hardest we're planning our hardest work week for our rest week from riding, you know, that might not really end up being a rest week. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's the mistake I, I fall into a lot of times. Like, like Drew, um, I like to be super productive. Um, but, I, my, my wife calls it, uh, um, she says I'm a procrastinator, but I, I, I like to refer to it as prioritization. So like if there's something that I know doesn't need to get done right away, I'll put that off until when I have more time. Um, and oftentimes that falls on a rest week or recovery mm-hmm. week. And I find myself getting to the end of my recovery week and just feeling just mentally so fatigued because I had all this, you know, chores and, um, work to catch up on and yard work and all, all these things, um, that they weren't training stress, but they were life stress. And at the end of the week, I'm always like, gosh, I should, I, next time I'm not going to do that. And I think what, what you're saying, Andrew, is like, you know, maybe, maybe put some of that stuff, like make your last week of your training block a little bit harder, try and do a little bit extra more, you know, more work or more yard work or whatever. So that way during your recovery week, you're recovering off the bike. Um, you know, you're recovering on the bike and off the bike too. Yeah. From a practical standpoint, I do all my house projects on my rest weeks, <laughs> like bathroom remodel, two weeks, rest week. I'm knocking it out that week. So a hundred percent, uh, not doing what Andrew just said <laughs> to my dad. Well, it's hard. Life gets in the way. You yeah, know, we, have to, we have to deal probably. with reality, but yeah, maybe there's yeah. a way to organize both to kind yeah. of be more in line. I like the thought, but um, in reality, I'm, I'm going to be honest. That's probably never going to happen for me. <laughs> for, from the awesome, guy who guys. remodeled your kitchen the week before uh, Nationals, right? Mm, yeah we bought a house the month before and i did i i remodeled the kitchen and now i'm doing the bathroom and man it's nonstop, dude when you don't want to pay people to fix your house for you it's it's a lot harder and it and it takes a lot longer and so yeah, yeah. it's fun though cool well, let's wrap it there um that was awesome a lot of technical information there but a lot of practical takeaways too, hopefully for everyone. Um, yeah, reach out if you if you have any feedback on what we talked about here, or um, any of your own advice or experiences. Um, especially if you've ever found yourself in a excessive state of fatigue, um, and you have some information to share with some other people um, that could be practically implemented. But all right, guys, we'll call it there. We'll see you next week. Sweet, sweet. Thank you. All right, folks, thanks for tuning in for the latest episode of the Matchbox Podcast. Like I said at the beginning, you can send any questions or topic suggestions to info at ignitioncoachco.com with email title, the Matchbox Podcast. 
Links to each of our social media pages can be found in the show notes. Tune in next week for another endurance training-related discussion and learn about how you can find that extra match for your next big event. Catch you all soon. Let's go! 